turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. As you turn there, let's ask the Lord to bless this time. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand that the message this morning has already been pretty clear. Even through previous prayer that you have a personal ministry to us. We've spent the last 15 minutes singing songs that have declared the fact that we are chosen children of God. That we have been redeemed and we have a Redeemer. Father, I pray that you would help us now as we look into your word. For those who revel already in the personal ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, with personal faith and belief, that you would take this time, your word, and encourage and strengthen. And for those who maybe have been orbiting for quite some time or are now starting to search out who the Lord Jesus Christ is, I pray that it would be abundantly clear from this passage of Scripture this morning that you have come into the world, you have sent your Son into the world, and he has come into the world to save sinners. And personally doing that, one can sing not just that Jesus has come, but that Jesus has come for me. Not that Jesus is the Redeemer, but Jesus is my Redeemer. I pray that we would understand and hear the words, your words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. Certainly want to look into our passage here, but I want to take a few minutes to set up what I believe is a helpful uh, a helpful outlook on this passage in John chapter 1. And really want to do that by asking you a fundamental question to Christianity, and that is, what constitutes true belief? What constitutes true belief? You could ask the question this way, how do I know if someone, or perhaps even my own belief, is genuine, or true, or sincere? We can ask it this way, do I have enough faith? Sometimes we hear people talking about faith as if it's a quantity of something. In the Christian language, we often will use the term saving faith. Do you have a saving faith? And this is often true, I believe, for those of you who uh, have children, like I do. I have four young daughters, and people who work with children were often trying to figure out, right, how to communicate and, and, and really relate to them in such a way that uh, they understand and we understand that they have a genuine saving faith, not just a bunch of ideas about who Jesus is, but that they know Jesus for themselves. You know, they can articulate through their mind, who Jesus is. They can articulate uh, these things, but the question is, do they also have a submission to who he is through their will and demonstrate that submission to who he is through their own emotions? Many adults also, too, have a surface belief of Jesus Christ, but not necessarily a personal belief. And you can see what we're trying to do here this morning a little bit is set the stage of contrast between knowing about Jesus and maybe even believing that he's something special or maybe even that he's God's son, but actually believing that he is not just the savior of the world, but that he is 
your Savior. He is my Savior. There's a tremendous difference. In fact, we're in John chapter 1. We see that there's certainly a universal invitation to believe in the prologue. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Look at verse 9. John says, There was a true light. He's using a metaphor here of the word of Jesus Christ. There's a true light which coming into the world, John chapter 1 verse 9 says what? Enlightens every man. That's a universal statement, isn't it? Jesus is the light of the world. He has changed the world, regardless of if people recognize it or not. It is a universal reality. John goes on to say, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So even, even right away, while he is the, the light that enlightens the whole world, it's true that not everybody quite understands this light, isn't it? John right away gives us these two contrary ideas of belief. One is out there for the world to see. The other one is in here for you, for me, to believe. In fact, verse 11 says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And we could go on. Verse 12, But as many received him to them, he, became, he gave the right to become children of God. There it is, a very special, personal Relationship, children of God, even to those who believe in his name. By the way, if, if you need a Bible this morning, I hate to do this and break it up, but if you need a Bible and there's not someone around you that can share that, raise your hand. We have Bibles. Our ushers can, can bring those to you. We're going we're gonna to be going through the Bible this morning. Not all of it, don't worry. We don't have them all that time. Uh, but if you need a Bible, just keep your hands up and the ushers will get one. So we see in the prologue that John demonstrates that there's certainly a universal invitation to believe, a universal reality of belief at some level. It's demonstrated in John the Baptist's testimony. Look down in verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, right? The Lamb of God. And what's the next statement? Who takes away the sins of the world. There it is again. Incredible invitation to all the world to believe. But yet we understand so consequently in the rest of the book of John that that is not going to be the case. That time and time again, people will buck up against the Lamb of God. They will refuse to submit to the Lamb of God and they will try to usurp their own power and their own idea of what is right. And uh, it comes to a point in John chapter 11, late in that chapter, where, John, where Jesus will no longer walk openly because people are so against him. And so we're thankful for this universal invitation, if you will, to believe in the gospel. But perhaps one of the weightiest realities for any Christian who knows the reality of a personal ministry of Jesus Christ is this. It is for a Christian to watch people claim to believe, but not actually to follow Jesus to claim belief, but not to be a Christ follower. In other words, understanding the universal invitation to believe, the fact that it's out there, and personally believing in Jesus are two very separate, distinct things. Many of us have relatives, don't we? Friends, perhaps people who you used to sit next to here in this very auditorium, who 
we worshiped next to, who claimed belief, but are not followers of Christ. Belief in words, but not belief in life, is a major contrast here in John's gospel. It's really contrasted in several different ways, and we saw that in the prologue, that there was this light that lightens everyone, but not everyone will believe in him. We also see it in several other figures, and one of those figures that I think is helpful for our passage, which I know we have to get to this morning, is the fact that John talks a lot about the crowds in the first 11 chapters of this book. And he really paints the picture that is distinct from the crowds to the small band of disciples that will end up remaining with Jesus. So John gives us a contrast between the crowds who occasionally followed and the small band of disciples who stuck with it and remained Christ followers. So turn with me very, very quickly to John chapter 6. I'm going to demonstrate that out here this morning. In John chapter 6, this elucidates a little bit our, our passage, and I hope to connect how. John chapter 6, verse 2, John says, A large crowd followed him, that's Jesus, because they saw his signs, which he was performing on those who are sick. Go to verse 24. Here it is again. We see mention of the crowd. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats, they went to Capernaum, and they were seeking Jesus. They were seeking him. So these crowds were following, they were seeking. John chapter 7, verse 12. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning Jesus. Some were saying, he's a good man. Sounds familiar in the world at large. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. No, he's, he makes people fanatics, right? That could be the other side of things. Yet no one was speaking open, openly of him for fear of the Jews. Look at verse 31. Here it is again, mention of the crowds. But many of the crowd believed in Jesus. We have many in the crowd believing in Jesus. And they were saying, when the Christ, or really in the Jewish sense, when the Messiah comes... He will not perform. Will he? Uh, he will not perform more signs than those which this man, speaking of Jesus, has performed. Will he? Verse thirty-two. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize Jesus. But then we see here in verse thirty-seven this amazing statement: We have many who believe. In verse thirty-one, but then in verse thirty-seven of John chapter twelve, I apologize. I need to get you there not verse 37 of John chapter 7. Verse John, John chapter 12, verse 37. Remember, we, we just heard how many believe and all these signs that Jesus was doing, but what does he say? What does John recount for us in John chapter 12, verse 37? He says, but though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, and the context of them is the crowds, yet they were not believing in him. And so several things I want us to observe that will be helpful to paint the picture as we go back to John chapter 1 is this. It's good to get used to flipping in our Bibles, right? Don't be mad at me for doing that. John chapter 1, several things I want us to observe about the crowds. 
the crowds as a whole are presented as occasional or temporary followers in John's gospel. Temporary or occasional followers of Jesus Christ. You know people like that, don't you? We have to, we have to add chairs and open up overflow rooms for Easter and for Christmas, and we're glad. We're glad to do it. Folks, don't misunderstand me, but that really shouldn't be the case with a Christ follower just to come on Christmas or Easter, or, right? That's not a devoted Christ follower. But the crowds were like that. They came when there were signs. They came when things were sensational. The signs or the miracles of Jesus, another observation, are what attracted the crowds. We saw that in John chapter 6 and 7. And the signs in John chapter 12 were not enough to produce genuine belief, right? We've heard that from some of our friends. And if, if only Jesus did this, then I believe in him. Folks, Jesus raised people from the dead, and people still refuse to believe. If you can't get past that, you ain't getting past anything. But lastly, and really what's critical to our context this morning is Jesus, as far as I understand, and I think this is true in John's gospel, and I believe it's true in the others, but I didn't go looking there. So I won't make this universal statement, but I'm going to make almost a universal statement. Jesus does not search for crowds. Never once. Not in the book of John. He doesn't go searching for crowds. You know, in our bigger, better mentality, in numbers rule today, CEOs, bottom line, all that kind of stuff, Jesus was upside down in his mentality. He never looked for a bunch of people just to follow him so he could say, hey, look, how great am I? He already had that title. He didn't need people to authenticate that. Jesus always searched for the one. Every time in John's Gospel. And this morning, I want us to see that Jesus is searching for you, if, he, if you haven't found that all, out already. He is searching for you, and he finds them, folks. Every time. Let's go to our passage. John chapter 1, verse 43. This highlights a key truth for us that I think we'll see in this passage that belief in Jesus requires a personal relationship in him because Jesus personally first ministers to you and to me. That's the pattern that John shows us as he calls his first disciples. Pastor Mike preached on the first part last week. We're, we're going to preach through the second episode beginning in verse 30 43 this week. Belief in Jesus requires a personal ministry in Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ. And where do we see that in the text? Well, verse 43 begins on the second day of Jesus' public ministry. And the first time Jesus initiates disciples to follow him. Last week, we saw that John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, just followed John in following Jesus. Right? Behold the Lamb, remember? And then Andrew and the other disciple, as Pastor Mike pointed out, was probably John. And then Peter to follow. But in our passage this morning, we see that Jesus' actions demonstrate his personal ministry, his searching out for the one and you think about this, how many people do we have in the world, right? There's only one person that can personally minister to every single person, my friends. And our text this morning says, it is Jesus. 
who knows you. It is Jesus who can fulfill you. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that has the ability to minister personally to each and every person. Not a pastor, not a discipler. While those things are true and biblically called for, don't misunderstand me. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus purposed, or he, our text says, many modern translations put the word Jesus there, it is rightly he, purposed to go into Galilee. And he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now notice, Jesus purposely went into Galilee. He had an intention, a great intentionality. And he had an intention that really articulate, is also articulated by the fact that he found Philip. You know, that word is a fun word in English where we got this word from Eureka. Right? That's the Greek word. Right? Eureka is, ah, I found it. And typically when we use the word Eureka, it's, oh, I found it. I didn't even know I was looking for it. Right? And that could be the case. That could be the word found here. But this word found probably is very much related to the fact that Jesus purposely went to Galilee. He had an intention and a purpose. He was seeking something or someone, and he found them. He found Philip. He found Philip. In fact, this word found is kind of an emphasis in this episode and the previous episode from last week. Five times you go back up to verse 41. Well, John speaks, and you have Andrew and Simon Peter's brother, and, and Andrew found first his own brother, Simon. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah. Again, probably articulating the fact that they were seeking for something. These were men of the Old Testament scriptures looking for the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah. And we see that again in verse 43, when Jesus found Philip. We see in verse 45 that Philip found Nathanael. There was purpose there. And then he says, we have found him. Again, articulating the same thing that Andrew and Peter found. The one whom the scriptures talk about. The one that we've been searching for. And so there's a great intentionality here that, ministers to the, uh, that, that really speaks to the very personal ministry of Jesus Christ. So we're saying that Jesus' actions here demonstrate his personal ministry. He, he searches, he goes to Galilee, and he finds Philip. And then from there, we see that Philip finds Nathaniel, and, and then the two find the Messiah. And this is a helpful place maybe to raise the objection, well, how can Jesus personally minister, right, to me, if he has not stepped foot on earth for 2,000 years? Right? How can that be so? You, you speak of a personal ministry of Jesus Christ. And he hasn't lived for 2,000 years on earth. How is that possible? Well, John demonstrates that Jesus' personal ministry is carried out through other people. He demonstrates that by Andrew going to Peter and Philip, here going to Nathaniel. And so this very personal ministry of Jesus Christ starts oftentimes with, with one person going to another person about the one 
who in Philip's words tells Nathanael, come and see. Come and see the Christ for yourself. And so it's a pattern that I think John is very clear in presenting to you, follower of Christ. Don't be disheartened when, when people reject your personal ministry to them because they are not rejecting you. They're rejecting the pattern of the one whom you are trying to minister to them. And, and can I make an observation this morning? Maybe some of you, you have a friend that brought you this morning, and you really like your friend. You really like your family member. You're really interested in their lives, and you look at their lives, and, and their lives seem good. But can I, can I make the observation to you this morning that it is the intention of Jesus himself to minister to you through the one that brought you this morning? Just like in our text, Philip to Nathaniel, or in the text to Pastor, that Pastor Mike preached on the week before from Andrew to Peter. Jesus uses personal relationships to minister himself. That's an amazing thing. So keep ministering, folks. And keep following those of you who are orbiting around Jesus, but you're not quite sure who he is yet or how much you should in, let him into your life. I do want to make one quick note on the grammar because maybe some of you know that there's, a, there's, there's perhaps a, a little debate on whether it is Andrew who, who is the referent in verse 43 for he... So in other words, let's go back there for a second. The next day, he, it's, that's, the, that's a pronoun, right? And it certainly uh, is rendered in the NASB, if you're looking at the NASB this morning, the New American Standard Bible, by capital, he, which is referring to Jesus, clearly. Um, many New Testament, mod, or many modern New Testaments actually substitute the word he there for Jesus, just to make it clear. Uh, but... But nonetheless, some say, well, it's not Jesus who went into Galilee and, and found Philip. It's, it's Andrew. And that's especially true because of the, the next verse, verse 44, uh, because Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And so they think, oh, well, it was, it was Andrew who kind of went there. And, and I suppose that could be a possibility. I, I, I don't, I don't want to get into the weeds here this morning. But if you kind of are reading through commentaries and, 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 that, and that was in your mind this week, I'm going to address it. Because I think it's going to further, ref, uh, uh, further uh, argue for the point that I'm trying to make. Right? So even if that wasn't Jesus, which I don't think, I think it's referring to Jesus. I, I'm going to go with the NASB on that. Um, regardless, the force of the personal nature of Jesus' ministry remains, and in fact, it only heightens the link between someone like Philip going to find Andrew and someone like Andrew going to find, potentially, Philip. The fact that we can say with Philip, Hey, Nathaniel, come and see Jesus only further references the point or uh, helps the point that personal ministry is necessary 
unto a personal ministry by Jesus Christ. Secondly, I also want to show this morning that the geography of the text really does show us or demonstrate Jesus' personal ministry. We see that in verse 43 when Jesus purposes to go into Galilee. Then we uh, see, secondly, in verse 44, uh, that, that Bethsaida comes up, and we have to kind of deal with these. Why does John just bring up these, these regions? Well, this is important. This is Jesus' uh, first recorded movement outside uh, where, where John the Baptist was in Bethany beyond the Jordan uh, to Galilee, in verse 43, as we mentioned. And Galilee was really a uh, loosely defined region, and it was, it was somewhat unpopular. It was somewhat unimportant. In fact, it, it kind of had a bad taste, if you will, in, in, in the Jewish mouth if you weren't from Galilee. And that's because if you were a, a purist at heart, being a Jew, uh, the, there are certain tribes like Naphtali and Zebulun that were to occupy this area and kick out the remaining occupants. That's just what was, if you go back to, you know, to, to uh, the Old Testament, you're going to see that, that that was, the, that was the task. And the fact of the matter is they were never successful in doing that. And so you had a lot of mixed ethnicities. You had, you know, a melting pot. And if you were a Jew, a melting pot culturally was a no-no. That was something that was really uh, uh, discarded and, and dirty. We'll see that a little bit later in John chapter 4. So it was culturally unimportant and, and rather disregarded. And then the focus goes from Galilee to, as we mentioned in verse 44, Bethsaida, where Philip and Andrew and Peter were from. And this was a place where Jesus did many miracles. Apparently, many more miracles than what was actually recorded. Later on, we're going to see that Jesus heals 5,000 people around this city. He heals a blind... Uh, excuse me, did I say heal or feed? I can't remember. He fed 5,000 people. Did I say it right the first time? All right. And then he heals. Did I not say it right the first time? doesn't matter. Now I did, right? <laughs> and then he heals a blind... At least I caught myself. I'm awake. So that's good. I'm not on autopilot. The, the point is, is Jesus did a lot in the city, guys. Don't take your Bibles there. But Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11. He says this. He says, uh, or Matthew says, Then he began, that's he being Jesus, began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Guess which one of the cities are named? Bethsaida. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. So these were stubborn, hard-hearted, wicked people. And even today, scholars debate on where exactly Bethsaida is. So, so the woe is a real woe. And so there's a geographical progression from Galilee to Bethsaida, from broader to more specific. And it demonstrates the purposes of Jesus to find his first disciples. And it gets all the way down. It, it, it telescopes all the way down from Galilee to Bethsaida to Nathaniel. Look at verse 48. Underneath a what? Boy, if that's not... From broad and general to very specific, I don't know what is. 
why does John go to all this trouble to give us these, a geography lesson, if you will? Why the mention of the fig tree? Is the fig tree a, a, just a decoration, you know? Is it, is it just to add some narrative detail to make the reader interested? Well, the fig tree is a fr- frequent plant in the Bible. It occurs around 60 times. In the Old Testament, it's associated with blessing, with comfort, with safety, with home. Fig trees in proper conditions can shoot up to about 30 feet tall and give a good amount of shade. And so in a very sunny, arid environment, this would be a, a pretty important thing to have around, you know? So in later uh, Jewish literature, so this is post-New Testament now, we have the mention of fig trees being popular places for rabbis and people to study the Old Testament scriptures. So it's kind of like, you know, a seminarian's coffee shop or library. It's a safe place, a personal place, a place to get away, a place to think, a place to study. And we see the telescoping from Galilee the seda to the fig tree. And aren't you glad that this same personal attention is available to you? That many of you remember the moment that Jesus got very personal in your life. When you had your Bible open or perhaps someone shared the Bible with you and it became apparent to you, just like it will become apparent as we see it in Nathaniel, that Jesus is your Savior. So it's more than just a random reference, the fig tree. It's more, as I already mentioned, more than just a narrative decoration. It's an immensely, intensely personal statement to Nathaniel, revealing that there is no ordinary man that's being revealed by Philip. It is Jesus himself. And so belief in Jesus uh, is demonstrated by a personal ministry. You saw that here in verses 43 and through the geography. And secondly, I want to see that um, belief in Jesus uh, unto a, a personal end is uh, demonstrated by a response. In other words, a response is necessary. It, it, it's typical for someone who understands Jesus as the Savior to respond in a certain way. And so by looking at the fig tree, we kind of get a we, we got ahead of ourselves and ahead of the text a little bit. Um, and so I want to see here in verse 43 that uh, not only does uh, do we see the, the geography and the fact that Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, but we see the response by Philip. The next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And what does Philip start to do? The implied response is that Philip begins to follow Jesus. And we see that. Well, how do we see that? Well, right away in verse 45, Philip finds Nathanael. And what does he say to Nathanael? He says in verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus Nazareth, Jesus, the son of Joseph. And so 
You know, there's nothing magical or incantational about this word that Jesus speaks to Philip. Follow me. I tried to do that a lot as a youth pastor, right? Follow me. We're going through one of the nation's busiest airports, right, teenagers? Follow me. And inevitably, they stop following me when we have to go through a security checkpoint, right? That's the time everyone always decides they need to go to the bathroom (laughs) right before, right? Or before we get to the international customs line where there's no point of return, right? Someone decides, oh, it's a good time to go buy gum. No, it's a good time to watch me get fired. (laughs) Not go buy gum if you're going to, if we're going to lose you like at the international line. It's happened all the time. (laughs) Ask any teenager. They're either guilty of it or they know of someone who is. It's not a magical incantation. I wish it were. It doesn't work with my girls at home. It doesn't work with our disciples. Follow me. But what it does do is it, it demonstrates here a personal response and, and the fact that we can't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And we can take a great deal of comfort in the response that Philip had. He, he did follow Jesus. And while we typically... Uh, excuse me. While Philip physically met Jesus, his basis for accepting him is just like our basis today. It's God's word. You see that? In other words, why was Philip convinced? It wasn't this magical incantation. It's, it's not just trying to get the, the intonation right. Follow me. Follow me. Right? Keep on going. There, there's no, Jesus didn't say it in such a way that, but what was Philip, why does Philip respond? Verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. In other words, when you see who the scriptures are talking about in Jesus, you will follow him. The word of God makes it abundantly clear. And Jesus makes the word of God abundantly clear. And when someone receives that, they will follow him. And so it's a helpful reminder for our own evangelism that you know, our own words will fall short of being persuasive. And it's not that we don't want to speak coherently and, uh, and persuasively and, and accurately and truly. Sure, we want to do all those things. But even the best orator in the world, if there was someone who could perfectly give a sermon, who was it? It's the man we're talking about this morning. The Christ, the Son of God. And how many people rejected his own sermons? So my friends, the the power of, of calling someone to follow Jesus rests in the word this morning. In the word, Jesus Christ, in the word of God, the scriptures. So, come and see. Search for yourselves the scriptures. We also not only see a a response that's simple but profound from, uh, from Philip, but we also see a response uh, that is helpful from, from Nathaniel. Because Jesus here demonstrates his intimate knowledge of Nathaniel through uh, the two statements that Jesus says to Nathaniel. So we're looking at the response 
what is it like for a believer to respond to Jesus Christ? And, and we see Jesus' two statements to Nathaniel. He says, first of all, in verse 48, as we've already looked at, I saw you. Before I even met you, I saw you underneath a fig tree. And that's remarkable. Certainly demonstrating the personal and, and supernatural ability of Jesus. But he also says this in verse 47. Jesus says to Nathaniel, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, what? Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Well, there seems to be a play on words here. Um, remember Jacob, that Old Testament character who was very deceitful? It's his name, the Greek version of it here, when Jacob switched Esau, his birthright. Jacob was thus named deceitful until God renamed him Israel. And so one could translate what Jesus said to Nathaniel this way, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. That's exactly what would have been heard. This apparently registers with Nathaniel because what does Nathaniel say? How do you know me? Right? He doesn't try to do any pleasantries. He gets right to the chase. Right? Jesus got, has his attention. And he asks, how do, you, how do you know me? How do you know me? And... Uh, and we see here that this is a clear statement for Jesus to personally minister. And so Nathaniel starts to respond to Jesus' personal ministry. But what is perhaps more telling is not Jesus' statements about Nathaniel, but Nathaniel's response. Not only does he say, how do you know me? But then after Jesus says, well, I saw you underneath a fig tree before I, I saw it, before I met you. Nathaniel says this in verse 49. He, he switches right away from a hey, maybe a defense. How do you know me? To look, how does he address him? This is not just a a term you throw out to anybody. Nathaniel answered him, verse forty nine, and says, "What, Rabbi, teacher." I will learn from you. That's what that means. I will follow you. And then what does he say? He says, You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. <clears throat> Philip's Response was simple, but life-changing. Follow me. Nathaniel's response is intimate, yet profound. You are the Messiah. That's really what I'd like to demonstrate this morning, Philip was saying. Just like Andrew and Peter said of Jesus earlier in the episode that Pastor Mike preached last week when Andrew says to, to Simon, his brother, in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. 
That's really what Philip was saying in verse 45 when he says, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. In other words, we have found the Messiah. And that's what Philip says. When, or excuse me, that's what Nathaniel says when he says to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And all of these are articulations of the Old Testament. In other words, both Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel were all well informed by God's word about who the Messiah is and what to expect when he comes. In fact, take your Bibles very quickly and just turn to Psalm chapter 2 to see just how true that is from Philip's response when he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. We see the nations are in an uproar in Psalm chapter 2. And in verse 2, the kings of the earth, they, they take their stand together, Scripture says, and the rulers take counsel together. And look at, look at what they do in verse 2. Against the Lord and against his Messiah. Messiah. It's the same word that in the New Testament is translated Christos, the anointed one. Against the Lord and against his Messiah. And so we see here, right, uh, verse, we go down a little bit longer uh, into this, and, and the nations are scoffing. And then in verse 6, of Psalm chapter 2, we see the Lord say, But as for me, I have installed my king. Remember Nathaniel's response? You are the king of Israel. Here in chapter 2 of Psalms, we see that God has installed his king upon, upon Zion. My holy mountain. But wait, there's more. Verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are what? My son. Remember what Nathaniel said? You are the son of God. You are the son. Today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And uh, so we see the a tremendous power in universality of the Son King there. Now, it's abundantly clear, I think, from the passage that uh, there, there's a well-informed individuals who see who Jesus is in light of the Scriptures. They see that He is the promised one, the one whom Moses and the prophets spoke about, as Nathaniel articulates it, the Son of God and, and the King of Israel. And, and am I supposing this morning that 
Nathaniel knows all that he means when he says that Jesus is God's son, that he is deity, that he is, that he is, that he is the son of God, as we New Testament hearers would hear that? Probably not. In fact, it's, it's more likely not, because later on, Jesus uses a different title for himself in verse 51. What's that title? This is the title that Jesus exclusively refers to as himself. He is the son of of man. And so we're going to get into what that is in just a second. But what I want us to understand is with all the scriptural understanding that these men had, they realized in their in their estimation of, of what the scriptures say about the Messiah that they had been personally introduced to him. And they responded in such a way. Again, seeing that the uh, Reality of Scripture is an incredibly important thing that obviously plays into the theme of John. So we see that Jesus has a personal ministry, that there's a demonstration of the response of his personal ministry. And lastly, I want to see this morning that there is a hope when you personally come to know Jesus as your Savior. That's the other point that we have here in verse 50. Jesus answered and said to Nathanael after he makes this great confession, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I don't want to take time this morning to go there, but that title, Son of Man, and you can write this down in the margin of your Bible if it's not already there, it might be in a cross-reference, really comes from Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel describes the anointed one, the Messiah there, as one like the Son of Man. He is like man, but not man, because he is also the Son of God. And, and really, in the context there, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it's clear that this one like the Son of Man has a dominion and a universal authority, unlike any human being ever will have referring to Jesus Christ. And then we could go to Revelation chapter 1, and you can take your Bibles and write a note there. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12 and following, we see a great, and maybe even we could say a terrifying vision of the one, as John puts it there in Revelation chapter 1, like the Son of Man who has eyes like fire, hair as white as wool, and, and, and has universal dominion and authority. It's the, it's the same like the Son of Man presented in Daniel chapter 7. And it really is the figure that Jesus has here when he talks of himself being the, the Son of Man. He wants us to understand that there is something more coming, Nathaniel. You think that it's awesome that I can see you underneath a fig tree? You just wait, because the Son of Man will reveal himself. And what does that mean? Jesus, aren't you here? Didn't you show yourself? Didn't you live among your... Yes, that's true. But the Son of Man has a different sense about it. You see, Jesus walking the earth, John saying, Behold the Lamb of God. That was Jesus' primary role, wasn't it? 
as he walked the earth the first time some 2,000 years ago. His primary role was to be the Lamb of God. But there is a day coming when the Son of Man will return. And you know what that means? He says it. There is something greater that you will see, Nathaniel. And in the context of Revelation, as John introduces us to the Son of Man, and as we, as we read through the rest of Revelation, we understand that there is a great and terrible day coming for those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who re- reject His personal ministry. But there's also a great time coming for those like Nathaniel, for those like you and me. There is hope coming that Jesus will set all things right, that violence will be vanquished and tears will be wiped away and death will be no more. And when he returns, right, all knees will bow. And all tongues will confess. And so in application of Jesus' statement to Nathaniel that there is something greater, I want us to understand this morning, for those of you who believe and personally know the Lord Jesus Christ, know that there is a great hope. There's a great hope for Jesus coming back. There's a great hope. But for those of you who have refused a personal relationship with him, there's still time. There's still time. But ultimately, those who reject him, there's a great warning. There's a great warning. And a plea for you to respond to Jesus Christ. So we see here this morning in this text a simple proposition that There's a great need for you and for me to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just to know about him. It's not enough. It's for us to personally respond. The Apostle Paul talks about it this way. You ready? Listen, I know we're we're, we're closing here. The Apostle Paul talks about it this way, as a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You won't find those words. We talk about having a personal relationship with Christ, right? talk about that all the time. It's just, you won't find that phrase in Scripture. But you'll find the ideas of it all over the place. Including, I believe, as John lets us into the window of the first disciples here. Paul puts it this way. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, For you have died, that is this personal relationship that you have with Jesus Christ, you have died, he's giving us a figure, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says this, when Christ, who is your life, appears, there you will also appear with him in glory. So, so the reality is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ can be articulated this way. When Christ, who is your life, that's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When he is your life. See, there are a lot of ways Christianity is treating uh, or, or ways Christianity treats Christ as a component of your life, right? He's not your life, he's a component of it, right? Popular Christianity, that's why I put it in air quotes. 
There are churches out there that treat Christ as an add-on. Right? Think about it. It's either a religious system. It's something you have to attend. You have to do specific things. And your life doesn't really need to change. It really doesn't need to ultimately be accountable to it. Just do these things and you'll be all right. God is an add-on. He's a plus one, if you will. There aren't just churches, but there are preachers, right, that use components of the gospel, aspects of the gospel. They preach prosperity gospel, or, or they weave in politics, or, or social reforms. But those causes oftentimes become greater in those kind of sermons than Christ's cause. And Paul says Christ is your life. And there are even professing Christians who treat church like a rabbit's foot, a good luck charm, a family gathering spot, or a social club. But their life is really void and empty of an actual relationship that matters. Christ is your life. Amen. So, simple question this morning as we turn the chapter out of chapter 1. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? If you do... Your life surely has responded in some of the same ways that Philip, Nathaniel, and Andrew's lives have. They are based on word of God information and life change. You're willing, like Philip, to follow him, to make Christ your life. Not only do you have a response, but you also have a hope, Christian. It may not seem like Oftentimes things are very personal and comfortable for you and for me, especially being a Christian. But my friends, there's a hope. Just like Jesus says to Nathaniel, there are greater things to come. And that's always the case for the believer who responds rightly to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So Father, this morning I do ask that you'd help us Help us to search our hearts this morning and really take great instruction that you seek to personally minister to each one in this room. You know each one by name. You know the secrets, you know the failures, you know the dreams and the hopes. You know our vulnerabilities, our shortcomings. But, oh, Father, you have sent your Son into the world to redeem us. And so we're thankful for the personal ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, that he can heal every broken heart, that he can cleanse every stain of sin. And so I pray that this morning, if there's some in this auditorium that have never personally trusted in Jesus Christ, 
that the word this morning, that the truths from Scripture, that he is the Son of God, and that he, he came to take away the sins of the world. And we, we know and we understand from this passage that we ought, to, we ought to substitute this, that he came to take my sin very personally is effectually able to do that. Lord, I pray that you would help each one in this room to trust in him. And that that true trust, that sincere belief, would then be demonstrated through a life that doesn't just make Jesus a component through family structure or social order or tradition, but it makes Jesus our life. Which now gives us great hope because we don't live by moment to moment. It's not ultimately where our successes are done. But we live for a life to come with great hope that the Son of Man will return in the clouds. And we will be at his right hand. And we will live for, with him forever. And that every tear and every broken dream will be restored and dried up. We pray that you'd help us not to, as John puts it, not to refuse to walk in the light. Lord, if there's some here who remain in darkness, that they would be convicted of that this morning. And that you would help each one of us to walk, as John says, as children, sons of light. That we would demonstrate the hope and the personal ministry that we have to a world that is dying. And without hope, if they do not have you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.